You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Chelsea Troy, a programmer working at Mozilla who has a side gig teaching master's computer science students at the University of Chicago. This is an unusual side gig considering she does not have a computer science degree. We talk about how she landed that job, how the interview process differs from industry interviews, and several other topics. And now, from boot camp to teaching master's comp sci. All right, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, thanks for having me. So you are the only person I know for whom both of the following are true. One, that your undergraduate degree was not in computer science or anything related to computer science, and you are now teaching master's computer science students at a very well-respected institution, University of Chicago. I've always wondered, like, what was the path that like led you to find yourself in this position? Sure. Yeah, of course. So it is true. My path into programming was less traditional than the computer science route. I did a boot camp an increasing number of years ago. I won't date <laughs> myself. Um, <laughs> and then I worked at Pivotal Labs for several years. I worked at a product company after that. And it was when I was at the product company that I went to a conference where I met someone who helps direct the master's program in computer science. And the program was looking for teachers at the time. I assumed that I was not going to be qualified out of hand because of my lack of a degree, because my understanding of the situation has always been that although tech is a relatively progressive place, when you get into academia, you're still looking at these sort of like pre-qualification type of things. And I figured they just wouldn't even look twice. So I had the same assumption for what it's worth. I'm <laughs> surprised to learn otherwise. Well, yeah, my plan when I applied was not in fact to get the position, which I was certain they would not give me out of hand. It was to demonstrate how stupid it is that we have these pre-qualification reasons. <laughs> that was literally what I was going to do. I was like, I'm going to make them reject me and I'm going to make them shake their heads and sweat as they do it. That was literally <laughs> my plan. Because you're like, I am qualified to do this job, except on paper. Right, exactly. Yeah. That was precisely <laughs> the point. I was trying to make a statement. Apparently, this is yeah. the kind of thing that I did for fun at that time. I still do other things that are similarly spiteful for fun, but maybe a little <laughs> bit more reasoned. But on this particular occasion, I decided whatever that was what I was going to do. And so the application process included... You needed to include a cover letter. You needed to include your curriculum vitae, which I did not have one of these. I did not understand, but I was able to look up how to make a curriculum vitae. Is that different from a resume? Well, as far as I can tell, my general understanding is, so with a resume, for example, for like my tech resume, if I'm going out for a position in tech, I'm keeping it to one page and I am literally only listing on there things I would want to talk about with the interviewer. So at some point, like projects that I did in my early career, I'm like not really putting those on my resume anymore because one thing that I'm very aware of is that interviewers, particularly if they don't know you very well, may be choosing more or less at random from your resume or picking the most quote unquote interesting thing that they think they see on there. And maybe the most quote unquote interesting thing that they see on there is worked on a mobile app for a major airline. Okay. Maybe that's the most interesting thing, but it's also a thing I did like 10 years ago. So it's not the best thing for me to talk about at this point. The most interesting thing for me to talk about at this point in terms of the actual story they're going to get is about sanitizing data that we're not allowed to keep at Mozilla, but that just doesn't sound as cool. Right, okay. right. <laughs> and so I only put the things on there that are going to be cool in real life to talk about right now. <laughs> Pro tip, people, if you don't want to get tripped up in the interview, don't give them the opportunity to ask you about anything that's going to trip you up. So that's my resume strategy. But with a curriculum vitae, you basically include your Little League softball. That's an exaggeration, but just like everything, every paper you've ever written, every paper you've ever been a co-author on, every kind oh, of thing like that. Apparently, the jury is out on whether you include blog posts, which means that my curriculum vitae is, according to some people a page and a half, and according to other people, 500 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I put together a curriculum vitae as best I could. I wasn't too worried about it because that wasn't going to be how I demonstrated my point here. I was going to demonstrate my point on the third part of the application, which was 
the optional syllabus for the class that you were going to teach. This portion of the application was optional, which I suspected meant that every UChicago graduate and CS grad person and tenure track person who like considered themselves a shoe in or considered themselves qualified based on their CV would type out a decent cover letter and would probably skip the optional sample syllabus. So what I did was I dove into the literature for the class that I was theoretically going to teach and did a bunch of research, figured out what I would teach, how I would teach it, did about 60% of the pedagogical design up front and delivered a sample syllabus with units, what we were going to go over, how we were going to go over it, what's going to be in groups, what's going to be individual, what are the reading assignments going to be, how is the homework layered, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Yeah. And this was my initial bid for like, I'm not qualified for this job, but it's for very bad reasons. <laughs> um, you, you really leaned all the way into this. I mean, you're, I you're fully expecting to get nothing out of doing this entire syllabus. Yes, exactly. Just purely for spite. I was so excited to be able to go hang out with my friends and be like, look at this syllabus that I created that the University of Chicago rejected <laughs> out of hand because they're stupid. That was <laughs> that was what I was getting out of this. <laughs> this, is, this is I would not in a million years have guessed that this was your motivation. This is how you ended up getting this job. <laughs> this is how it happened. So jokes on me because uh, they saw my sample syllabus and they were like, I mean, I guess we at least got to let her do a lecture audition. Oh, lecture! I've never heard of that. So they they have you come in and do a real like do you guest lecture for the students or how does that work? What they do is they give you a guest lecture. It's an hour long slot. I think they don't actually call it a lecture audition, but that is what it is effectively. You come in, they book a room for you. You can have slides. You can do whatever. And some number of the faculty are present. The academic director is present, and it is also advertised to students. So students are permitted to come. Okay, so they can come, but it's not like you're replacing a normal lecture in their schedule. No, no, no. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, I can imagine if you're a student and, like, what if it sucks, right? Like, yeah. what, what if the person comes in and they just totally bomb and you're like, uh-oh. Yeah, that would be awful. Definitely. But they don't do that. It is, yeah, the most auditiony I've ever felt. Teach- mm, the second most auditiony I've ever felt while teaching a lecture. The most auditiony was fast forward to after I got the job, they asked me to do a lecture for prospective students. That felt auditiony because I was like, oh man, they <laughs> are decided that they're going to represent the University of Chicago computer science program by putting this tatted up lesbian on screen. And, <laughs> and this is how they're going to try to convince students to come to this school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think, I mean, maybe uh, decades ago, that would have been like very far from mainstream. I mean, honestly, like that's not as far from mainstream as it used to be. It's not as far from mainstream as it used to be. I, in fact, did struggle with it when I first got on the job. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. I don't want to get okay, too far okay. myself. It's a story with lots of intrigue. And you understand that the Chicago mayoral elections are going on right now. For those of you who are not familiar, Chicago politics is like its own film noir all the freaking time. And so we get bathed in this storytelling strategy. And so I'm trying to keep it entertaining. But yeah, I did this lecture audition. I went in there and my plan was once again, be embarrassingly more prepared than anybody else who is doing a lecture audition (laughs) for this. So I had my whole thing planned out. I had my whole overall structure. I needed a whiteboard so that I could draw diagrams on the board. And then there was coding there was theoretically live coding in this lecture. The problem with live coding that I have is inevitably it goes wrong at the worst possible time. That's I think that's normal for live coding, honestly. I don't know if that's a you thing. I appreciate knowing that. And even having, I mean, at Pivotal Labs, I'd worked at Pivotal Labs for years and there we do everything is pair programming and we narrate it all the time and everything. And so I had some background in the skills for it that's always useful for it but i figured if it's on stage for example at a conference usually i can get out of it pretty quickly if there's like a problem or something like that but just for this particular circumstance i didn't think that was what i wanted to do so what i did was i did every code portion ahead of time and made commits and then moved backwards through the commit history to demonstrate the different pieces i believe i was adding a feature to an android app and i was explaining something about the overall landscape of mobile development as I was doing this. So it was extremely well-prepared. 
the lecture audition went, in my opinion, about as well as it could, this particular lecture audition. And so I walked out of the room and I was taking off my extremely tall high heeled boots that I'd insisted on wearing for this. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was perfect because that went really, really well. So they're going to feel really terrible. <laughs> the fact that they can't give me this job because I don't have a degree. And then the joke was on me again because they extended me an offer. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I honestly, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is not how this was supposed to go. So did this make you less cynical? I mean, it seems like it just turned into an inspiring story of, you know, triumphing against the odds. You know what? What I think it did turn into is a laudatory story about the directorship of this particular University of Chicago program, because I think that they did have an uphill battle convincing the university to allow me to teach there. I have no idea what they did, and I have no idea what they said. But I really appreciate the effort that they went through for that. The UChicago Master's Program in Computer Science is very specifically attempting to prepare people for, I mean, this sounds bad, but like real life computer science jobs, which is not to say that other CS programs are preparing people for imaginary computer science jobs. But working at labs, I interviewed a lot of new graduates from CS programs who are looking for their first programming job. And there are a number of things that computer science programs tend to cover really well. And one of the things that they more frequently have a gap in is skills that will be necessary to walk onto the floor of a paid programming position and be useful right away. Uh And which, call it utilitarian, call it what you will, but it is helpful for hiring and having job purposes for people to have that skill set. And so one of the things that the MPCS is very adamant about is they want current practitioners teaching in the program in languages that people get paid to write today and bringing in knowledge from the actual companies that students might want to work for. And they understand that in order to have current practitioners, you need like these are people who already have jobs. And they are in an industry that is not academia. And so they have dealt relatively effectively, I think, with a lot of the challenges associated with getting people who already have jobs to teach night school in a field where they might not necessarily have to. And so I appreciate them for that. And they surprised me for sure, because this was not, I did not expect this, but I've been mean, enough for years. If that's their goal, then yeah, they're probably going to have a tough time trying to find qualified, like actually qualified instructors who who have like academic credentials. Now, granted, it is pretty common to find people in industry who do have comp sci degrees, but it's definitely not the case that like everybody who you know is qualified to teach that is going to have a comp sci degree. Like if you're looking for practical, a lot of people are an increasing number of people are coming out of boot camps. And I'm interested to hear that that's something that universities are, at least UChicago, I don't know if, if others are doing the same, but I, from what I've heard, there's, there's at least some t- general trend, maybe to different degrees at different institutions, but towards trying to make the, the curriculum more job ready. Because when I was an undergrad, which granted was two decades ago now, <laughs> we're old. <laughs> I did have a computer science undergrad, but I already came into it knowing to program. It was mainly just like, I just wanted to spend my college time doing more programming because I really liked it already. So I had these internships over the summer and I was really surprised by how unprepared I felt in the sense of I had like breezed through a lot of my classes because I just like knew this stuff already, especially the intro classes. It was like, okay, I know this. Like I remember one class, I realized that attendance was optional. And I think after the first lecture, I showed up for like just the midterm and the final and the labs and like got an A because I was like, I, I that's the degree to which I know all this stuff already. But again, I felt very unprepared because it was like, I'd never like written code collaboratively with people before. Like I didn't know about like writing code in a way where you're trying to optimize for other people being able to understand it other than me. I, it had all been solo stuff. I didn't grow up with anybody else who knew how to program because this is again, decades ago (laughs) it wasn't that common of a thing i learned programming from a book because like we didn't have an internet connection yet that wasn't the thing that everybody had yet but so like then i get on the job and it's like oh i need to look at other people's code and like work on their code and i need to write code that other people are going to look at and read and extend and like none of my classes have prepared me for this and like certainly like there was one course in the entire curriculum 
that I took, and it was an optional elective that even brought up version control. That class was actually kind of about, it was like a one elective, I think it was called like software engineering or something. And it was like, oh, let's like work in groups to like build a thing and like, and use version control and stuff, which at that time was VCS and not even subversion, not VCS. Oh my God. What was it called? CVS, right? It was CVS, not subversion, which became popular later. And then certainly not Git, which I don't think was even a thing back then. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I was actually by coincidence, there was this Ah, council, I forget what it was called, but it was basically like there was one representative from every grade level. So I was for our class, I was the representative that went on this little committee and we would meet with the the heads of the department and just like kind of give them feedback. And I was like, cool, I'm going to tell them about this. And I was really surprised that the response was basically, hey, we're not a trade school. We're an academic institution. And so we're, it's not our mission to try to prepare you for the job market. It's our mission to, I forget what the alternative was, but it's not the goal to try and prepare you for the job market. And I remember being stunned by that. And I I didn't have an eloquent answer at the time, but I think what I wish I would have said was something like, then there's a big mismatch between what you think you're doing and what the students are expecting to get out of this. Yeah. Because like people who are going for a comp sci degree are probably not looking to like go on and do research by and large. There's a few that are, but like that's very much the exception. Like most people who are going to comp sci then, and certainly now, I and mean, probably a lot of people are looking at it as like, I basically want a boot camp with a fancier diploma at the end while getting the college experience and you're know, going to parties or whatever and like learning stuff about life and, and all that good stuff and taking other non computer science electives. But I certainly think that today a lot of people are just like, no, I want to get, I want to get that salary when I graduate. That's what I'm here for. And I know that this is not specifically the point of your story, but I also find it an unconscionable reach that they would have that response to your comments on a class that covers version control as if collaboration is not a thing that a researcher would ever need to be able to do. (laughs) We're preparing people to do research. We're not preparing them to do this pedestrian coding with (laughs) other people. (laughs) We're, We're teaching geniuses who can independently come up with their own ideas about how we should do things because that has historically worked out very well for tech in general. That's going excellent for us. To be fair, I wasn't really taught. And in fact, I don't even think I'd taken that class yet when I gave the feedback. It was really kind of broad that I was saying like, I did this internship. I was surprised by how many things that like I wasn't prepared for and also don't really see as part of the core curriculum. But yeah, I mean, point taken. It's it's not as if the only way to do research is to like go off in your own lane and write your own code and then like, you know, no one else ever sees it or interacts with it. Especially because it seems like there's this growing concern about reproducibility of results. And in programming, we have, I would say more than a lot of other disciplines that do research, a great ability to facilitate making it easy to reproduce stuff if you are able to provide the code that you use to run the experiment, which in a lot of cases, it's just like, as long as you can find capable hardware and you can just actually reproduce the experiment, like anyone can do it. However, it is important that people are actually able to run the stuff. And as uh, what I've heard is that this is actually a big problem in a lot of cases is researchers will do an experiment, publish the code and people are like, Hey, I downloaded this and I tried to run it. It does not run. Clearly you have something installed on your machine that I don't help. I can't actually reproduce it, even though you gave me the code, which has to be frustrating for somebody trying to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That, in fact, ends up being a big discussion in a lot of machine learning research circles, and you may already know this, but within these machine learning summits, there are generally two types of papers. One of them is I work at an academic institution and my work is highly theoretical and I figured out this better way to optimize this particular type of neural network or something like that. Or it's like theoretical about simulating neurons or something like that. And the other paper is, I would call it uncharacteristically applied for an academic conference. And it's usually like, I work at Spotify and this is what we did to make our recommendation algorithm do what it does. Or I work at Netflix. There's like sort of a a cadre of about six companies that produce a lot of these papers. Um, And in part that has to do with scale and part that has to do with who's capable of performing this kind of research at scale. And then And a lot of it has to do with with recommendation systems, understandably, because that's one of the big commercial applications of this kind of thing. And so that's what folks are doing. But it is presented 
not infrequently as a bad thing, as like, oh, where we don't have rigor, obviously, because look at all of these applied industry papers. But one of the things that I think about a fair amount is the way that, so in machine learning specifically, we are at a point with this relatively new industry where the ethical concerns, we talk a lot about the ethical concerns, but also the structural, there's the sort of basic structural elements of it that we still need to get in place in order to be able to perform it safely, let alone ethically at scale. And it's also a field that lends itself to a lot of divertive language. It's, we don't have the principles well-defined enough yet to provide a relatively simple ontology of how it works. And so it's not uncommon that folks will have everybody, four different papers will talk about this new sort of algorithm that they've invented theoretically and what happened. And in any scientific research field, this happens with, with more commonality than we talk about, but they're all describing the same thing and they have all coined a term for it. (laughs) And so then when you're trying to build sort of a taxonomy of machine learning algorithm types, you have all these four, and it can be very difficult to reconcile where they go in the tree relative to each other, because it turns out they're all describing the same thing. And I think that, of course, there are issues with the motivations associated with industry research, for example. Industry research is probably less concerned with scientific rigor, less concerned with variable isolation, less concerned with a pure application of the scientific method, and much more concerned with how do we get the thing to actually create more clickies and send us more dollars? Yes, absolutely the case. However, however, we also have the situation in academia where in order to get published, which is, as I understand it, central to being able to keep jobs and get jobs and those kinds of things. So it's a very strong motivation. In order to get published, you need to be able to produce research that demonstrates that you have discovered something new. So if you submit a paper that confirms the results of prior papers, it's less likely to get published. There are all these sorts of biases in the way that papers get published, apparently, including math in papers makes them more likely to get published, even if it has nothing to do with the actual subject of the paper. There are all of these, there are absolutely issues that need to be examined with the potential motivations behind research done in an industry setting. But I think that is certainly no less true in an academic setting. And it's something that we need to be aware of when we're looking at work like this. In particular, I'm thinking about this machine learning reproducibility summit that I went to. And one of the big discussions there was about, oh, there's not enough ethics research happening. And it's because all of these industry people are in here. And the talk was questioning that assumption and looked into how much of the ethical research is coming out of academic institutions. And it's true that a fair amount of it is coming out of academic institutions. Not all of it. I work for Mozilla. We're doing some of it. But (laughs) let's just say neither academia nor industry has a stellar track record on the proportion of the research that is ethics related compared to perform, you know, speed related or something to that effect. And I think there are plenty of reasons for that. One thing is much easier to quantify than the other, and that makes it better for research. I won't say better, more convenient for research purposes under time and effort constraints. Or at least that's maybe that's true in computer science. But I mean, there's I assume there's lots of other disciplines where, for example, putting math in your paper maybe doesn't make it more likely to get if you're doing like a literature analysis or something like that. I can't imagine that they're like, oh, yeah, did you get some? One would hope, right? Right. (laughs) Although I will say that when I was doing undergrad in international relations and I wrote papers that did not need math in them, I was encouraged to include some. So it may extend beyond. Okay. All right. <laughs> Maybe more than I would guess. Yeah. I've also heard that, and you know, I, I've never even like attempted to publish a paper, but I've heard that that novelty requirement that you mentioned, like if something is new, then it's much more likely to actually get published, leads to an incentive problem where the best kind of new is technically new. And it's like, we took this thing that like kind of everybody knows. And then we're like, well, what if we try it with this very slight twist that has a very predictable outcome that's not actually that interesting? It's like, oh, that's new. Great, great job. And then someone will say like, they'll come up with something that's genuinely interesting. And then rather than just like writing one paper about it, they'll think, ah, I can get like a good dozen papers out of this. If I just publish each of the 
separately obvious like variations of this that like are all going to come to predictable conclusions but technically they haven't been tested yet so i can write a different paper about each one of them right it's like the dolphin that figures out that it can receive fish from humans every time it brings trash to the boat so it finds a piece of paper and rips off little pieces so that it gets more fish out of the deal wait is that a real thing that happens that is a real thing that happens. oh wow yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's hilarious. I mean, we already have sea lining in tech. Can we call this dolphining when you deliberately rip up your conclusions into little pieces to get more out of them? <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like then maybe on the industry side, there are concerns about incentives about like, well, really, you know, why are we going to write papers about ethics? Like there's no money in it for us. And ultimately, that's what that's the reason we're doing any of this, because it's a business. But then on the academic side, there's the perverse incentive of yeah, like, you know, we can't really measure novelty or interestingness, but if you clear that bar of technically it's novel and technically it hasn't been seen before, then like, great, big bonus points for that, as opposed to something that might actually be not novel, but like more valuable in terms of like, hey, I replicated this, I got the same results. In retrospect, I bet there are a lot of, like, I've heard this is a, especially a problem in psychology. They've been having like, they've been calling it the like replication crisis because it's been so many things have turned out to be unreplicable when people have tried to replicate it. I would imagine that, if they had had, and I'm kind of assuming that this is an academia-wide thing, this like novelty requirement, if they'd had less of that, then maybe they, that wouldn't have been as big of a problem because more people would have said, hey, let's try to replicate this because that's that's actually a thing that's considered valuable and I don't, I don't have anything novel to publish right now. So rather than ripping up pieces of paper and trying to just sneak my way into fake novelty, I'll just spend my time trying to replicate this other thing and then being like, oh, wait a minute, this actually doesn't replicate. Hang on. <laughs> I wasn't able to replicate it. And then it becomes actually an interesting paper. So it's weird how those incentives can have these sort of downstream effects, maybe because everybody assumes that disincentivizing people from publishing successful replications means that people don't try to replicate because they assume it's going to be successful and therefore it's going to be hard to publish. Mm -hmm. But if you want the interesting, actually interesting result of, hang on, this didn't replicate, then you need to incentivize people to, to try it, even if it might have the expected outcome that it was replicable. Absolutely. There is also a piece of it happening wherein, so after that second product company, I went out on my own and was doing, I would call it freelancing or consulting, depending on how much I was trying to get paid by that particular client. <laughs> but I did a lot of work. One of the coolest things I had the opportunity to do was provide my programming skills such as it was to academic teams that were attempting to do research that involved writing code, but they themselves were not computer science researchers. So the flagship example that I like to use here is a study done in partnership with the Zooniverse, which is who I was working for at the time, about kelp populations. And so what they would do is they would take data from satellites that circled the globe and would extract the data. It's not presented as an image. That data is not presented as an image. It's presented as a series of numbers representing light of different wavelengths reflected off the surface of the earth and detected by these satellites, by Landsat satellites. But from that one wavelength would correspond, particularly in the visible light spectrum, one wavelength corresponds to a color. And so you're able to go into the wavelength data and say, okay, give me the green wavelength, the one that corresponds with green. I want you to boost that. Then I want you to render it as an image. And there were a couple of other optimizations that we did to make it more image-like in a way that you or I would look at that and say like that is a map of the surface of the globe. And it would illuminate where kelp was growing. And there were originally the point was to understand changes in where kelp was growing and how kelp was growing and when kelp was growing. And it ends up having a lot of sobering but fascinating follow-on findings associated with climate change and how that affects kelp populations and the populations that depend on them. And it was a fascinating project. The entire research team was excellent, brilliant, really cool. And what I was working on for them was figuring out how to create effectively an online application that would allow them to do what they were doing more or less via this 400 line script that had been sort of cobbled together to uh, render classic. these images <laughs> out of the right. data and then put them somewhere where 
volunteers could help identify kelp. So like somebody like you or I would go into the Zooniverse mobile application and be able to look at these images and circle what looked like kelp to us in the images because over the whole surface of the globe, relatively little of it turns out to be kelp. So wow. it was helpful to have somebody find that. And what I learned, it was a thing that I already knew, I think, but it's very illuminating to witness firsthand the incredible work and often Herculean effort that scientists in other disciplines are going to in order to be able to do data science because they don't have programming backgrounds. Nobody has taught them about testing, documentation, replicability. They might not have such a firm grasp on Docker. They might not even be working on machines that are up to date enough to be running half the things that you or I would download without a problem for the for-profit companies that we may or like be able to work for. And nevertheless, they managed to come up with something useful. And I understand, it gave me a lot more empathy for witnessing this replicability problem because maybe in computer science research specifically, there's less of an excuse. But I see a lot of cases where a grant didn't really provide the budget for an actual software engineer. So some marine biologists figured it out and they did a pretty good job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you were to go to them and be like, this isn't replicable, they would be like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? I built this on a machine from 1988. Okay. And it runs. And what do you want me to do? Yeah. So it gave me an appreciation for that. And it made me want to spend, like, I think People ask, like, oh, what would you do with your retirement, this, that, and the other, which I think is increasingly becoming a a silly question as it becomes clear that our generation may likely not be able to retire. So one of the things that I cynically think about often is, well, if I'm not going to be able to retire, what would I do instead of retiring? Hopefully there's some point at which I can at least back off, right? And I think the two things that I would like to do, I would like to teach. I absolutely love teaching, and I would like to find ways to be able to provide the technical experience of an industry career in research contexts like that, because they could really, really use it. Grants, frankly, don't make it possible a lot of times for them to hire an industry engineer off an industry job. But I think there is massive, massive potential there for taking tech skills and using them for positive impact. And it's often with just like very motivated, very motivated people who are really excited about the work they're doing, which is also a rarity. It was a ton of fun. Nice. I always think about this from the tools perspective and like, how can we make it so easy to make code that can be reproduced and and run on other people's machines that if I'm a data scientist and I'm relatively inexperienced at programming, I'm certainly not, you know, at the level of a software engineer professional that it's not a problem because I, I'm just able to download this basic tool set that lets me get up and running. And then afterwards, somehow, this thing will, will replicate on other people's machines. And I know that there's a lot that goes into that. It's not easy. I mean, that's certainly something I keep in mind when thinking about Rock and, and how easy it is to replicate on other people's machines. But because we've been kind of trying to do that, I mean, give you an example of like the type of challenge that comes up that is not easy to solve, which makes me understand why it's it's so often not solved. But like, so we have this, it's not a full-blown package manager yet. It's going to be in the future, but right now it's just kind of URL-based. And when you say like, okay, I, I depend on this package or I depend on this platform, that distinction matters in Rock, but a lot of people listening won't know about that. That's fine. Let's just talk about packages. In some cases, what you're downloading in the specific case of a platform includes some pre-compiled binary code. And the reason that we have this pre-compiled binary code is that I've all too often had this experience, specifically in like Ruby and Node.js, where I'm trying to install a package and I'm like, I just want my JavaScript package. I just want my Ruby package. I want my Ruby gem. And it goes to the installer and it says, error, LD could not find lib something something. And I'm like, what is that? I don't, what, what do you mean? What lib, lib, what is this lib thing? I don't, I don't know what the lib Cairo lib, what are you talking about? And of course it's a, some C library that was, that the package is depending on using C interop and it's expecting it to be dynamically linked, but my system doesn't have that. And now suddenly I have to wander off into 
you need to install a C library, dynamic library onto your system. I'm like, but I don't want to write C. <laughs> I, I wanted this package manager to just take care of this for me. So this was one of my unwavering, it shall not be this way in rock principles is that you, you can only, now granted that exact thing, it is technically possible, but I have some plans for how to make the user experience less terrible when, when that does happen. But the main thing is that there's no like building C code on your machine. Like that's another thing I've seen fail is like, I'll get this big long stack trace from Clang or something when I'm trying to install a package and not C. <laughs> so everything has to be pre-compiled when you're doing that. Now, a challenge there that that surfaces that you don't have when you're building from source is that in some cases, like specifically uh, in the case of different Linux distros, some of them will depend on different versions of foundational things like libc. So like on macOS, it's not a concern because macOS sort of mandates that like everybody has to dynamically link libsystem and every version of macOS has it. And they're like backwards compatible enough that, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Great. Mm -hmm. No problem there. But on Linux, it's a different story because on Linux, you have glibc on like Ubuntu and Debian, like a whole lot of Linux variants. But on NixOS, they don't dynamically link anything. And so you need a statically linked, well, they don't dynamically link their libc, I guess. And so you need like a static version of that. And then like, and then there's other distros that do other things. And so what we were finding was that, again, I was in this situation where like, despite my best efforts, people would install this thing on Ubuntu and everybody was happy. And then one person comes on, they're like, Hey, I'm on NixOS. I tried to install this and it just, it failed with a cryptic error message. I was like, Oh no, Oh no. We tried to prevent this. And then it turned out the fix was to make it so that that low level code was compiled with this portable libc that can be statically linked called muscle m-u-s-l rather than like glibc which is kind of the default that everybody uses but then muscle has a slow allocator so you have to use a different allocator so we used meme alloc instead of that and so it was like a lot of work went into just getting to the experience of anybody can just install this package and it just works and it's hidden behind the scenes that like there's these like complicated c things happening so even just knowing about this problem and wanting to solve it and wanting to create this ux it turns out there's just like a lot of work that goes into trying to make an ecosystem be that level of reproducible it's not easy and i guess a lot of it comes down to like the low level stuff like the hardest parts of that are like the c and the you know c interop type things mm -hmm. because i imagine if if you only have pure python dependencies and they're all you know python 3 dependencies i'm guessing that it's not that bad I could be wrong. I don't use Python enough to know whether that's true or not. Certainly, I would expect that in Ruby. But yeah, as soon as you get any kind of C stuff in the mix, everything gets a lot harder. Yeah, I uh, have had similar experiences downloading various data science and machine learning packages where exactly you get like a stack trace and now you need to go plumb some C code. It's like, all right, right. Well, this is and not how I was planning on spending my Monday, but here we go. <laughs> right. And a lot of those, of course, I mean, I would assume are using C because they need it for performance, because you've got this gigantic data set. And if you try to do the whole thing in, in ordinary Python, it's just going to run for days. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly what's happening, I think, in most cases. Yeah, I have this like sort of pipe dream. Like I, I know very little about the data science world. So I'm kind of like, well, it would be cool, but I can't really bank on this because I just don't know enough about it. But like, we've been pretty careful to make the math stuff in Rock as fast as C, or like you can write it as fast as C without needing to drop down anything lower level. Like we have no overhead compared to what C will like literally will spit out the same machine instructions that Clang would if you were compiling a C file. My hope is that that means that people could do really fast data science processing things in Rock, but I also know that there's other considerations like arrays and matrices and stuff and like what's the overhead there and we do have like mandatory bounds checks which I don't think would be a big enough deal in practice to like cause performance problems, but I don't know. So, I'm kind of like out of my depth there, but I was like, well, at the very least, we can do arithmetic super fast. So maybe that's enough. We'll see. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I didn't ask, but um, what's your course about? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I taught a mobile software development course for a couple of years. I'm looking at sunsetting that. I teach Python programming, and I also teach intermediate Python programming. Okay. So those are both classes that focus on using really the focus is on practicing software engineering principles in the context of Python. It's important to me that each of my classes remains useful to students, even if they don't go on to actually do professional work in the particular discipline that the class covers. So mobile software development was is was a class that used mobile as a context to discuss 
a whole bunch of different issues in software engineering because when you're talking about performance with folks who are new to programming or folks who are building new applications in programming, it's largely theoretical because the thing that they write over the course of a couple of weeks is not likely to get large enough that there is a problem on a laptop with its size. So you have to just tell them to imagine that it were bigger than that. Or unless you're having them stream large amounts of data, which we don't do in the software development class, it's hard to discuss how important speed is in anything other than a theoretical fashion. But when you are dealing with a phone, all of a sudden, the package sizes need to be a lot smaller. You also tend to be making a lot of HTTP calls and things end up taking a whole bunch of time and you have to figure out how to render things on the screen before that and how to make that go as quickly as possible. So those kinds of concerns become more material in a mobile application than they tend to be if you're just using a laptop. Another thing that it's easier to talk about, I find in a mobile context is the importance and the context in which having an offline first approach would be important. Because the truth is that the vast majority of the time when folks are on a laptop, they are not offline. And so it's a thing that is valuable to think about in the context of a mobile application. We talk a little bit about user interface design. We talk about software risk analysis. We talk about test-driven development. So it ends up being a useful context for talking about all these different skills it is also taught in Swift and Kotlin, which are languages that most computer science students haven't been writing a whole lot of. So it gives them not one, but two opportunities to practice learning a new programming language, which is a thing that I teach them a series of steps for doing. And so we do it together for the first language, which is Swift, and then I have them do it on their own for Kotlin so that they can quickly get up to speed on Kotlin. This is something that I was having to do all the time at Pivotal was we were theoretically a language agnostic shop. And so if you were working on a Ruby project and then you got switched to a Java project, you needed to be able to get up to speed on Java and be able to help the client in Java. And so we were relatively well-versed in ramping up like that. It was such a different perspective than I find at a lot of companies where, for example, the job application will be like, you need at least four years of Java experience. Oh, yeah. Or somebody will be like, oh, it's a programming job for this language, and I've been writing in that language, so I'm not qualified. Oh, well, yeah. It's like a thing that a labs developer would, would struggle to understand, because it's like, what, you, you learn the language. You already have all this programming experience, and so as long as the context in which you've been writing code are similar to the context in which you will be writing code, the specific language shouldn't be a blocker. I totally agree. I mean, that philosophy has always made way more sense to me. I also think about it in terms of like, so imagine how much time someone's going to spend, like a new hire is going to spend ramping up on the code base. Just mm -hmm. add up the total number of hours before they're like productive enough to, you know, help ramp up someone else, let's say. Okay. And then add on to that how much time before they are productive enough in a new language to be able to like get stuff done in it what percentage of that is going to be language? It's like, it's probably going to be dominated by the code base, right. I mean, at least in my experience. And I mean, you could say the same thing for like, you know, frameworks and libraries and stuff. Seeing those things on applications, it's like, how long do you think this person's going to be at your company? How quickly do you really need them to ramp up? I mean, granted, if you're like, I need someone who can start, you know, next week. I was like, well, first of all, how fast is your hiring process? Like, what's your time to hire? What's your turnaround between when they apply and when they get through your interview process and get an offer and like accept it and actually want to start because they got to give their two weeks notice and stuff. It's like, how much of a hurry could you possibly be in where they need to know the language and the framework and all that stuff on day one or else no deal, no right. dice, you know? It's like, eh, <laughs> I'm skeptical. It feels like one of these things that we have decided is a best practice for amorphous reasons that nobody's really sure what they are anymore. Yeah. And everyone just sort of followed the other. And now that is the trend in hiring for these jobs, even though it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. See, what we need is more outliers like you, Chicago, who are willing to buck the trend and like actually make the best hire. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> to be fair, I made, I made a very compelling case, albeit out of spite. <laughs> 
have you done anything else since then that's where you're like oh i should do more above and beyond like work out of spite because that worked out so well last time it did it did work out well what have i ended up doing let's see i don't know how above and beyond out of spite this is but i think that we have a tendency in sort of the tech field specifically of no more broadly but i i tend to address it in the tech field of misinterpreting the results of research and not really considering the role of statistical rigor in that research and so i think probably the most annoying spite based thing that i do now although i mostly don't talk about it on the internet so maybe i avoid some ire for that but I'll take a look at the statistical rigor of paper. Like if somebody's, if everybody's like talking about a particular paper. Ah, yes. <laughs> I'll go take a look and determine what the error bars around the conclusion actually are. Right. And they're often much larger than maybe the paper initially represented, or the paper does represent them that way, but then people talking about the paper tend to ally that part. And so I end up doing a fair amount of that. And it's not, you know, the thing is that once again, we run into these incentives for making a paper sound like it's presenting something novel and making a paper sound like it's finding a significant result. And so folks have in academia have a sort of imperative sometimes to, I think there's a situation where the statistical rigor is at odds with the publishability in a way that I find extremely alarming. So a fair amount of that. I do continue to attempt to go above and beyond in my actual teaching. So I teach at the University of Chicago. I teach workshops for O'Reilly a fair amount. And I recently started doing some teaching independently. So that's been a lot of fun. But I think that anytime a field such as ours has a reputation for being difficult, for having a high barrier to entry, Part of the problem may be the complexity of the material, and part of the problem, I think, often is the pedagogy being used. And so I am hopeful to be able to find pedagogical techniques that are going to work really well for people. And it turns out that that differs sort of, maybe this is unsurprising, but it differs according to context and it differs according to what people are actually trying to do with the information. So, for example, I can ask for much more intense engagement from computer science students who are learning these skills right now from scratch for the purpose of getting a job or for the purpose of the even going into research or something like that. Whereas when I'm teaching professionals, and in particular, the more senior the professionals are, the less time they have to spend on professional development type of stuff. And so while I can deliberately favor interactive exercises for students that I can mandate that they do, for let's say i'm developing a course for senior software engineers i need to make sure first of all that i'm presenting my material concisely enough that they're not going to get stuck in the middle of it and then i also need to make sure that i'm providing easy hooks for them to apply it to whatever work it is they're already doing because if i assign them some independent project they're just not going to do it i find that nine out of ten times if people are doing independent programming work it's on like their own project if their own devising or a project that they've joined it's not oh, this online workshop assigned me this thing and I'm trying to do it. So right. it has been interesting to figure out how to formulate the pedagogy depending on my audience, which I don't know if I could necessarily call that going above and beyond, but I think a lot of online education resources do not take that into account. Folks are sort of like, well, I know this thing, so I'll teach about this thing because I know it. And it's better than nothing for sure, but... There is a whole skill set of transferring information from one mind to another mind that I think we largely discount in tech the same way we discount, I mean, most skills that aren't programming itself. That reminds me of like another thing that I, again, don't have firsthand experience with, but have heard, which is that when a university hires someone to be like a full-time professor, oftentimes what they're optimizing for is that person's sort of research credentials. Like, how are they in the lab? How are they, what are they going to do in terms of papers? And so... They're going to ask that person also to teach, but the amount of like time and energy that person puts into teaching and how, maybe how much skill they do and how much they care about it is kind of potentially all over the place. I mean, mm -hmm. some people might care a lot about pedagogy and, and about all the things you just talked about, but others might not care at all. Mm -hmm. And so you might attend a lecture by a world-renowned researcher and you're just totally confused and you're not getting anything out of it because 
Although, yes, this person is a world-renowned researcher, that does not make them automatically an effective teacher. <laughs> no, it does not make them automatically an effective teacher. It's a completely separate skill set. And in fact, I think, one, that uh, we sometimes see an inverse relationship in because the art of teaching is figuring out how to bridge the gap between somebody not understanding the thing and somebody understanding it. And a lot of people who are world-renowned researchers in a particular field were not people who ever didn't understand the thing. It came naturally to them. They just sort of got it. Having something come naturally is a disadvantage when it comes to teaching, because if somebody walks into the room who does not get it, the teacher has no way. It takes, I will not say no way. It takes an immense amount of work for a teacher to figure out how to help a student having that particular experience if they have never had it before themselves. Yeah, totally makes sense. I ran into that a number of times, I think, in undergraduate study, world-renowned researchers who, for some reason, were put in charge of teaching a 101 course, which they made it very clear they were not interested in doing and were required <laughs> to do for the purposes of their position, which probably didn't help matters. But even the ones who were trying, it was clear that no one had ever explained to them, like, you need to figure out how to present this for somebody who doesn't just get it automatically. Right, right. And it's not always there. Yeah. Well, hey, good on you for actually caring. I'm trying. <laughs> trying to do a job for your students. I'm trying. And I have the pedagogical advantage of having many of these concepts having been difficult for me. Yeah. That helps. All right. So let's, I'm glad you can still remember back when you were struggling with them yourself and like try to use that as a, a way to help other people not struggle with them. Mm-hmm. I try. It does over time. And I think this happens to everybody. You watch somebody do something and that you've been able to do for years and years. And you're like, I'm not, I don't understand why it takes so long. And it's just a matter of putting in the practice, but it is a thing that I endeavor in my courses to make an encouraging experience. So. Awesome. We covered a lot of ground. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I can't think of anything too specific. So I mentioned a number of things in this conversation about like, a conference talk and the, the whatever paper and stuff like that. I can send you links to blog posts to better elucidate those concepts. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. By all means, go for it. Cool. Awesome. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation and I, I learned a bunch of stuff about the academic world that I did not know. And thanks so much for taking the time. Of course. Yeah. My pleasure. Happy to be here. All right. 